Hello, this is John Hendren, and you're listening to BachCast, episode 41. In this episode, we're going to be looking at, listening to, the first partita for solo violin by Johann Sebastian Bach, BWV 1002. This piece is presented by Bach in four movements, each with an additional movement, which he calls a double. The language Bach uses to describe these Baroque dances, you must think of the partita as a suite of four dances, are presented in Italian language rather than French, which, um, well, it makes us wonder why. Bach, for instance, when he wrote the cello suites, wrote the title page in French. Mixing languages like this, we must think that Bach is trying to evoke the uh, the style of these different countries that were known to uh, musicians at the time. And in the world of violin music, um, everybody would point to Italy as the avant-garde, the, the place where the newest and most interesting music would have come from for the violin. You look at Bach, who took the violin concertos of a certain Antonio Vivaldi, the Opus 3, L'Estormonico, and reworked some of the concertos. So it's not surprising that if Bach were to borrow another language to describe these pieces, he would go to Italy. This first movement that you're listening to is the Allemande, or as we would say in French, the Allemande. Four dances. Allemande, Courante, Sarabande, Bourré. But he provides these Italian versions of the, of the dances. Um, Alamanda uh, for the Bore, we get Borea for the Saraband, Sarabanda, and for the Courant, we get Corrente. Um, and after each one that he presents us, he presents a second version, a double, if you will. Now, if we look at Baroque dances and we look at the suite as a, as a concept, Composers would write multiple dances sometimes, and there were multiple reasons for doing it. But if you think very pragmatically, if you're going to produce music that was meant to be performed, that might have actually been danced to, then composers had to be pragmatic about how they presented things. For instance, if you were going to have a very short period of time in which to perform, uh, you might not take the repeats. Or you might repeat more than once, and you might uh, add your own variations. Well, Bach is kind of doing that here and saying, well, here is the dance, and then I'll give it to you again. But I really don't think Bach is thinking pragmatically. He's not thinking, oh, I have to produce music, and I want to help the performer by being flexible and giving them extra pieces to perform. If we look at a DJ today who may be hired, let's say, to do a wedding, And the bride and groom decide, hey, we want to extend the dance uh, period right now. Everybody's having a great time. There's no need to end it. Could you play a few more songs? Of course, a a good DJ is going to have a playlist ready and be able to accommodate that request by extending the amount of music that's, that's, that's played. So in some cases, composers would have produced 
multiple versions of things simply to allow the, the performer to stretch the amount of music. If I look at, for instance, the harpsichord books that were produced by composers like the Couperin uh, or Rameau even, um, how did suites get put together? It wasn't always dictated that this suite was this particular piece followed by this particular piece. In some cases, performers today, actually when they're doing recordings, are, are figuring out how to put these pieces together. They're forming their own suites, if you will, out of these books of, of pieces. And so you think of that in a pragmatic way. If I'm, if I'm sitting down at my keyboard, my harpsichord, and I have a binder full of music, um, I can pick and choose. And frankly, I think some of the pieces might have been chosen as people are sitting there. Oh, I think I'm going to now follow this with a slow piece, so I'll pull out a sarabande, or I want a faster piece, let me pull out a jig. Uh, and I want another jig, but I'm not going to play that one in minor, I'm going to change the key up to a major. I have a feeling that these choices were made by composers so that performers could be very pragmatic in performing. And that's not the case here. Bach, of course, by 1750, when he dies, he is sort of looking backwards. Uh, in a way, I think Bach was a perfectionist. I think he left us some pretty perfect music. Um, and he is looking backwards in the traditions, but he's putting his own stamp on things. And I have to tell you, a lot of composers didn't do what Bach did. So you got to think... In all that, all that talk we say or that historians tell us Bach was sort of old-fashioned, Bach was, um, he looked backwards, not forward, he wasn't a real modernist, he still was somebody who was creating anew. He was somebody who was trying to perfect things. And he was trying to forge new ground. And so in this first piece, this Alamanda, we get this beautiful melody that's underscored, a foundation with rich harmony that's provided by this instrument called the violin. It's really important for you to understand these pieces in the context of what it was around, around the time Bach was active. So I did an earlier episode about Baroque violin music. It was, it was not featuring music by Bach, but I did specifically so you could get a taste of what others were doing. This idea of solo music for one instrument is kind of new. There weren't a lot of examples. There were some. Bach wasn't the first one to write solo violin music or even write solo suites like this. What he was first at, however, was writing music of this magnitude, this with this much gravitas. This is, this is a profound piece of music. And he is exploiting the ability of the violin in it to play full harmony. And that in itself, we wouldn't question Bach's metal as a composer if he just left us this. But then he does something very interesting. He does it again and again and again and again, four times. He takes a piece of music Typically, the first one is rich in harmony, using double or triple stops to give us the flavor of harmony involved. Usually, those, those chords are happening on strong beats. And then in the double, in the variation on that, 
he picks up much of this very same harmonic language. In some cases, you can even hear the ghost of the first piece as the second one starts. And instead of exploiting the violin in that way to be able to play full chords, he uses other techniques to indicate harmony. In many of the cases that we'll hear, he adds extra notes. So you've been listening to a very unique uh, recording that is new to me. It's, um, it's one I've been toying with for about the past year in purchasing, and I eventually decided to pick it up because I uh, overcame my uh, trepidation with the recording as I heard it when I auditioned it through uh, online music services. This is a recording by the um, Austrian Baroque violinist Gunnar Letzbohr. And what he does on this release for Pan Classics is he decides to put the microphones very close to the instrument. He wants us to hear these pieces as if we were him, the performer. This is a very intimate account because it's not performed in a, at a concert stage. It's not in a, an auditorium. It's not in a church. It's being performed in a practice room. And the sound is very different than what we're probably used to. It's jarring at first. But once you start listening, I think you'll get used to it. And it affords us a different type of view of these pieces, I think, because they are very intimate. So the Allemande is typically, I think of it, I won't tell you what others say about it, I think it was a medium-slow movement. It's not the, it's not slow, slow, but it's not one of your faster movements. I, I tend to think Allemande is somewhat like Andante. It's, it's kind of a walking uh, pace. And what happens in the second movement, where now Bach has to reproduce the harmonies that he introduces the first time around, but do it in such a way where he can't use double stops. So there's a lot of notes, isn't there? And the speed really picked up. One of the things that I think is going to be a challenge to performers uh, when they're presented with these doubles is how to capture the essence of the dances. Uh, Bach is pretty deliberate, I think, in trying to capture the essence of the dances in each of the four main movements. Those would be one, three, five, and seven. And the, the, the burden, I think, is on the performers to know the dances well enough to reproduce the, the rhythmic gestures and to capture the same basic pulse. Um, I don't think anybody would argue that somebody would actually dance to these pieces in the Baroque era, uh, let alone in modern times, be expected to dance to them. But the idea that there is a dance form behind it, that there is a tradition behind the piece, speaks to, I think, uh, an impetus for the performer to try to reproduce that pulse. And in this first example by Lutzbohr, I have nothing against 
pushing the tempo. I am uh, usually enamored with fast tempi. However, in this case, I think there's something lost in that feel of that initial movement that we hear. Uh, I'm going to counter this performance with another one that uh, I also like. Um, it's by the Baroque violinist Helene Schmidt. Uh, her release has come out on the Alpha label. Uh, like Mr. Letzbohr, uh, her release has been uh, distributed in two separate track, uh, separate recordings. Um, and so if you look for it, just know that there are two, two different discs if you're interested in both the sonatas and the partitas. So yeah, in this example, uh, first movement, first two movements really, the Alamand and its double, I I think I prefer the approach taken by Helene Schmidt. Uh, she takes the first one a little more cautiously. Um, I think that Letzbohr's initial tempo is also very serviceable, but she is playing in a what I would call a wetter acoustic. Uh, she's not playing in the practice room and uh, she's really letting the violin sound. She has a very gorgeous tone to her instrument. She uh, will take the liberty of applying vibrato to longer notes. And she really, I think, savors when she gets to cadences. Uh, and I find that not just in the examples that you heard, but throughout the recording. And it's one of the reasons why I really uh, think it's gorgeous. Um, but that slower approach, I think, really works in that second movement, the double. Because for me, I hear uh, what I would call the ghost of the original Alamanda uh, in the background. Uh, I have not taken the liberty of analyzing this to the point of putting the two pieces on top of one another to analyze them as such. But to me, uh, on first listen, they sound like they are uh, really true variations of one another. Uh, similar musical material, a, sim a similar musical idea. And what we have here is Bach presenting two versions of that, saying in essence, I want to present a Baroque dance for the violin. I want to present it in the, this key. I want to present uh, this harmonic structure 
and this melody and here are two different ways to do it two different substantial viable ways to present this musical idea if you think about that just for a minute uh, most composers would be satisfied to write something once but here's Johann Sebastian Bach saying you know what I'm going to write these six pieces for the solo violin I'm going to give you the best I've got and this is one of the ways I'm going to try to impress you as a composer. Now, I have no idea if those types of thoughts ever went through Bach's mind. But I love to entertain the thought that, yes, as a composer, he's trying to show us uh, what is possible uh, through the art of composition, uh, at least using the rules that apply to music theory, uh, or as we might call it, a theory of music at the time that he lived. And boy, what gorgeous music it is. And I really think there's something to be said for the role of the performer here. Again, to capture that concept of saying, hey, here is an alternative version. Here's an alternative universe, if you will, of the same piece of music, but now I'm gonna present it in a very different way. Now Bach's solution time and time again in this piece is to take multi-chordal playing, double stopping, triple stopping on the violin, and then using what I would call as a loose term, arpeggiating those same harmonies, adding a few extra notes. Obviously, in some performer's hands, they may choose to speed it up because it looks like it's fast music, but I really appreciate the interpretation that takes it at least a little bit slower. Now, in the second movement, which also has a double because Bach doubles each one. We have a corenta or a corrente, um, a corant if we're going to Frenchify it, right? Um, the corant, all these dances were popular dances. And again, I mentioned that we weren't really actually going to perform the dance with it. But Bach is hearkening back to the idea that maybe 100 years ago, a composer would have been writing this as music to be performed. Of course, we've come a long way in those 100 years, and Bach is now writing music that may have been for an entire ensemble or for the keyboard and writing for a single string instrument. Uh, again, in this movement, he's using multiple stops to emphasize chords. Let's give this a listen, and we will continue with the violinist Helen Schmidt. Aha, so Bach isn't giving us multiple stops here. The current starts with um, basically fast notes. Um, and he gives us basically a theme, an idea. Now I'm going to call this theme waves. 
to me, this feels, especially the way it's being performed here, like we're, we're, these are waves of things coming. We're going up and we're going down. Kind of coming down. There's the rhythmic pulse that's part of this, and there's also this this idea of the goings up and the goings down. I like Schmidt's reading of this because she's articulating things differently depending on the direction of what I'm calling these waves, the, the upwards and the downwards motion of notes. And Letzbohr does something interesting. He really is playing with time a lot. He's applying uh, rubato to the piece which again get, lends it this sort of human feel to it. It doesn't sound like a robot because in some Baroque music, especially when there's a lot of the same type of note, all 16th notes or all 8th notes or all 32nd notes, whatever it may be, when they all are regular, there is an inhuman or a, or a mechanical sound to the music, especially if you're listening to it as a, maybe as a MIDI file on a computer. Uh, and one of the techniques that a performer has is to apply rubato, which is a kind of a stretching or pulling of time where, where we're not a slave to the metronome. And this music, I think, lends itself to that somewhat, although ultimately I like, uh, I like Schmidt's feel to the, to the movement. Um, and, but she does play it a little bit slowly, I feel for a, a, a corrente or a, a courant. Um, certainly, if we were to go through the entire catalog of different performers playing this, some performers would take take the speed of this uh, much faster. But maybe we're holding back a bit because what does Bach present us in the second movement now? So in the first, it was multiple stops and then what I'm calling arpeggios to represent the, the, the harmonies. And in this piece, we get lots of notes. What does Bach take to in the second movement of the Corrente? I, I really have a hard time turning that music off. Um, uh, my favorite my favorite movement of of this partita, the first partita in B minor. Um, it takes this strong musical idea that Bach already presented to us, but then just kind of uh, blows us away in a way. He's still adding more notes to it to get to that effect. And there is still that rhythmic pulse, which is uh, underscored by the way he groups the notes together. And there's still this very strong feeling of waves of going up and then going down, going up, coming down, going up, coming down, going up, coming down. Um, he's reproduced it, but he does it in a different way. And the result, I think, is just profound. Uh, if you... Uh, 
have not heard this recording, I do think that Let's Boar's technique is uh, is solid, but the recording technology that he's using or the, the approach is very different. Um, and this is one of those pieces where if you are a, a virtuoso and you have the chops that, yes, you, you can even hear it played faster than this. Um, one of the most most breathtaking i think readings of this actually comes from the recording i purchased pro probably last year uh when it came out uh, i don't think it was out for too long or i might have even bought it pre-release but by uh mr teeley on on the mandolin and i think i've featured his reading before uh in our earlier podcast of bwv 1001 but if you haven't heard this um it does take technical chops. The notes are all the same length. And so if speed is your desire, you have to uh, play all these notes uh, equally well. And uh, the violin is one thing and is its its own challenge. But when you start transcribing this for another instrument, um, it probably presents another challenge. And for those that have transcribed this for the guitar or a plucked instrument, um, this is even more apparent how perfect it needs to be performed. I'm going to let you listen listen to a little bit of Chris Thiele on the mandolin, uh, just because I think it's incredible. So Bach's third choice is uh, for a movement or a pair is the Sarabande. Um, the Sarabande actually is uh, a dance that we believe came from Spain. It likely was a little zestier and faster when it was the Spanish version because it then became outlawed. Um, and by Bach's time, it was popular as a slower three beat per measure movement. Um, one of my favorite pieces of box is a Sarabande from the second cello suite. It's one I've performed, and so it has a special place in my, uh, my mind. But in this case, uh, Bach has resorted to using multiple stops on the violin in a very smooth, almost legato uh, approach. Um, Lutzborg gives us some space between some of the notes, but other performers including Helen Schmidt, will we'll play this a little more smoothly, um, really exploiting the ability of the violin to play multiple tones at once. And as you might imagine, since he's already done it before, in the first pair of Allemande and the double, uh, in the double of the Sarabande, um, Bach again resorts to mostly getting rid of or eschewing the multiple stops, 
he does introduce them, um, but for the most part, he's going back to using multiple notes again to underscore harmony. And so since we've been listening here to Gunnar Letzbor in the first Sarabon, in the double, I'll give you a taste of the artistry of Helen Schmidt. creepy um we get this beautiful piece of music and then we hear it in a uh, in new clothes if you will um it's almost as if we had two box right one in one part of one universe and then we have we have a uh, a parallel universe we have somebody writing the same piece of music but in a different way um it had to be sort of this really kind of unique almost uh, I'm going to use this word because we don't hear it a lot used this way, but it's almost queer um, that we would get two versions of a piece uh, and you can hear it. You can hear the same harmony. You can hear the same melody from both, but by themselves, they are fully unique pieces of music and they uh, take different solutions uh, I, th I would say, to how to exploit this instrument. Bach grew up as a violinist. He played the violin. His son said, uh, you know, maybe he wasn't the best virtuoso, but he had a clear and clean tone, something of that nature. Uh, he, of course, was famous as an organist, as a keyboard player. We know he owned several keyboard instruments. He was responsible for the cons uh, overseeing the construction of and testing and purchase of of organs and harpsichords so uh, violin may not have been his his forte but he's writing music he's trying to exploit what this instrument can do and so he presents us with with two viable um solutions here's this melody here's the harmony i want to go with it and here i'm, I'm going to do it two ways very interesting in the last movement, um, typically Bach might might follow a cerebrum with a fast movement like a jig, something that has a little bit of, of, of zest to it. Uh, in, instead, we get the, the borea, and the, the borea was uh, really a French dance, and typical in borets, we would get uh, a rhythm that included a strong upbeat. Now, an upbeat in music is basically what we might call a pickup note. Uh, typically, if I'm going to sing you a rhythm, I would start on the first beat. Um, and if I was in, let's say, 4-4, four, 1-2-3-4, four, I would say 1-2-3-4-1-2-3-4. And if you said, John, start again, I would say 1-2. But if there's a pickup note, it precedes that first beat. 
and it ha has this it has a different feel to it when we do that and one two three four and one two and da uh uh da 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 we it it offsets that accent so the first thing we hear isn't the strong beat it's the pickup to the strong beat so let's let's hear how Bach does that in this first um, Borea, and I will clue you in that he is likely to use some double stopping. So that was Gunnar Letzbor performing the uh, the Tempo di Borea, the um, seventh movement in Bach's first partita. Um, you can hear it. Dun, 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 and one, and one. Dun, 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 There's really a big rhythmic element to it. And it's only amplified by using multiple stops, right? And you're, you're just pulling the bow across the strings to play multiple notes at once. Uh, it's, it's quite well done. It's idiomatic to, I think, the instrument. And it underscores this kind of rhythmic pulse that we would expect in, in a piece that had a flavor of the borea or a bore. Um, let's listen to now the, the double, because this for me gets a little controversial in how people perform it, because I feel that the double should take on the character of the what preceded it. It should also be a Bore-esque type piece, and Bach is up to his old tricks again. As he did in the first, as he did in the third movement, he's replacing that multiple stop technique by adding more notes. And performers, I think, they don't quite know what to do with it. Thank you. 
don't get me wrong. I'm not a violinist. Um, I mean, I could pick one up and play notes on it, but I could never even fathom playing this music. And so it, it brings me pain almost to criticize, but the music is played beautifully by itself on an island. It works. Uh, Bach is a first-rate composer, and these are first-rate performers playing the music on instruments known to Bach. But I just question, where is the flavor of the dance? Where has it gone? Um, and I'm not an expert on how to perform this music, but it just seems to me that I should feel some of, some of that pulse. And to me, the most important element was that kind of pickup beat. Bum, 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 bum. There is a rhythmic underlying element there, but at the tempi that these two performances that I've been sort of pitting against one another have picked it up, I'm not quite getting it. And in fact, in looking at so many of uh, the recordings that I have of these pieces, I failed to find one that really fully exploited what I'm talking about. But I'm going to give you a, a different taste uh, of the way this could go. And again, I'm looking for sort of the rhythmic pulse. And I ultimately like an approach that goes maybe a little faster than what we just heard from Helen Schmidt. to ruin the music performed by Chris Thiele, but I just wanted you to hear that sort of undercurrent, dun, dun, and it picks right there towards the end of the phrase. Here's the B section. Bach introduces uh, multiple notes here again, a little double stopping. second little snippet I gave you was Paul uh, Galbraith, who performs on a modified uh, guitar, concert guitar, um, and maybe is a good foil for the Chris Thiele uh, rendition. Uh, he, he picks a faster tempo, maybe not quite as fast as Thiele, but he, again, he's pushing the tempo compared to what we heard on the violin um, in the examples I gave you, and he has almost like this metronome precision which uh, is the exact opposite of what we heard earlier from uh, Gunnar Letzbor, which is playing a little bit with rubato and kind of stretching time a bit. Here, when you're, when you're a slave to the metronome and playing this music, uh, what is revealed, I think, even more closely to our ear than maybe if not, is the way Bach has sort of 
embedded the rhythm and emphasis and artificial strong beats into the music. Um, however, he's playing so evenly, he's not really exploiting again that that rhythm that I that I want to hear in the background. And I ultimately think Chris Thiele maybe underscores it a little a little more clearly for us. Uh, with that said, um, there are a lot of ways that this gets performed uh, in terms of, of tempo, in terms of accents, in terms of uh, pushing and pulling the tempo uh, with what we call rubato, which is sort of the, um, the ability of the performer to slow up and, and speed up a little bit as, as they feel the music demands. I think there's a place for all of it. Uh, and I wanted you today in this episode to hear a number of performances that uh, put it to use. So to wrap up, uh, you know, when we think about Bach's first partita, Bach is setting out to write this, this collection of six works for the violin, the three sonatas, the three partitas. Partita here is being used as sort of a term as a, as a type of suite using dance forms. And in this first one, Bach is playing this game almost of saying, hey, I'm going to present you with these dances and then I'm going to give you variations. And in so doing, his variations may not be exact uh, replicas of the dances. They may not be slave to the elements of the dances as they may have been recognized. But as long as Bach, I think, gives us those elements in the first movements, he is free to invent and to uh, maybe even improve upon uh, the elements of the first. In three of the movements, Bach chooses to sort of say goodbye to the, the multiple stopping capability of the violin and makes up for uh, that missing foundation of harmony by writing more notes using a sort of an arpeggiated technique. We hear it there in the last movement, the, the double of the uh, Borea uh, in that sec first partita in B minor. Uh, it's kind of an interesting technique that Bach uses. He doesn't do that often. He's not a composer that's really fond of variations. Uh, of course, we have exceptions to every rule, and his uh, when he does variations, he does them on a grand scale, the Goldberg variations are variations on a bass theme and here Bach is basically taking uh, what's conceived as melodic music and presenting us variations on it. But variations not of a tune per se but a variation of, of the piece, taking the essence of the piece which I think for Bach harmony is so important. The harmonic, um, the passing of different harmonies if you were to analyze this and, and write out, let's say, the chords that, that line up for each of these, uh, that is the foundation of music for Bach in a piece like this. And he he basically reinvents it for us each time, which is, which is fascinating. I think for the performer, uh, you have uh, a lot of, obviously, a lot of notes to perfect. There's a lot of technique involved. Beyond that, it's, well, how are you going to present this idea of a variation? And as you've heard today, not all the performers do it the same. And of course, I could give you more and more examples. Hopefully, you'll revisit this now, thinking about what I've presented here in this podcast episode, and maybe hear this piece a different way. If you haven't heard these performances, uh, again, 
I kind of tell you, and I'm try to be very honest about what I think about the music. I'm I'm never probably going to give you an example of something I just don't like altogether. So when I say I don't like something, or when I say I like this better, um, please please keep that into perspective. That uh, at the end of the day, I really do like what I'm presenting here. If if I if I own it and I'm willing to share it on the podcast, and it's probably something I like, and it's probably something I would encourage you to seek out if you haven't had it heard it before and so the performances today i've i've mainly used two performers but i've had actually added uh two more here at the end so the performers gunnar letzbor on baroque violin he's the performer that's performing with his microphones very close to the instrument to give us a different perspective um and if you enjoy that recording i would recommend you put on headphones to maximize an impact helene schmidt uh, she uh, recorded on Baroque violin in a much more uh, reverb-heavy environment. I wouldn't say she's gone overboard, but it's uh, there is a little bit of a different uh, sound aesthetic to that recording, which I think is absolutely beautiful. I think she is somewhat careful with the music, but uh, I really like that approach because I think uh, you are more than likely just to blindly pick a recording of the Sonatas and Partitas off a shelf if you still have access to a music store that puts music on shelves. Um, if you're just to randomly pick one, you'd likely get a very virtuosic approach to this music. And so when a performer comes along and really has great chops but doesn't just play it loud and strong, uh, I really take note of that, and I think there is some inherent beauty that is revealed in taking that approach. And then he, the last versions uh, I've presented here are not on the violin. And I think, again, why does that work for box music so well? Um, of course, you can take any piece of music and rearrange it for something else. It sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. But for me, Bach is never married to one instrument. His music sort of transcends the sends instruments, and we could we could go blue in the face trying to answer that question as why. But I think one of the primary reasons that is the case is because Bach's music is so grounded in harmony, and that harmony uh, in this in these in this first partita is important. It's the underlying foundation of each one of these four dances. Of course, there's rhythmic. There's there's other things going on which we could make note of, but it's that harmony. Um, and Bach is really a, a good expert of exploiting that harmony in different ways. And rhythm is so much of that as well. Uh, when you look at the, the way he's grouped all these notes that come together, looking at all 16th notes, um, you have to do it in a certain way that sounds right. And it's hard for me to explain without getting technical but by grouping things around harmony and then offsetting the rhythmic feel of things, it's not because he's adding eighth notes here or, or, or changing the rhythm. It's, it's the way you're grouping notes together. Uh, he still gives us some of that rhythmic pulse that I think is important to the dances. So it's a combination of all the different elements and him doing it so well that ends up creating this masterpiece. Uh, I hope that made sense. I hope it gives you appreciation for some of the things to listen for. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this episode and listening in general to the Botcast. I have a, a, a lot of fun putting these together, and I've been receiving some emails from folks. 
If you've never dropped me a line, that's okay. Uh, I, there's no cost associated with BotCast. There's no, um, there's no uh, obligation on your part to reach out. But if you do enjoy listening or you have a comment on how I can improve these podcasts, feel free to drop me a line. The website for podcast is bieberfan.org. That's B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N.org. And you'll find music reviews there, but you'll also find the home of Bachcast. This is our 41st episode. So if it's your first, hey, there's some that come before it. Uh, I want to thank you for listening. I'm your host, John Hendren, and have a great day.